this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name's Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Jill Richards about her book, The Fury Archives, Female Citizenship, Human Rights, and the International Avant-Garde. Jill Richards, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, This is quite an arresting... uh, a set of, of topics that you kind of lay out in the the subtitle of your book, Female Citizenship, Human Rights, and the International Avant-Garde. <laughs> so um, what ties all these three things together? Right, right. Originally, you know, academic subtitles are sort of annoying in that your publisher wants you to have all the keywords that could be searched for. Um, but basically, I wanted to track the ways that developments in women's rights and female citizenship were happening apace with um, human rights. Before human rights became what we know it um, as today, as a sort of arm of the United Nations and multinational institutions. At this sort of earlier moment, um, I argue that human rights are a lot more plastic. Uh, They mean different things to different people and get appropriated uh, as a kind of tactic for some early uh, feminist movements. And it's, it's interesting that in this early century moment, uh, you also have avant-garde movements uh, really imagining themselves as players uh, in political action, for better or worse, right? Not necessarily um, having any purchase on political outcomes. And so it's this sort of welter of forces that I'm looking at as an archive in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about your book is how you connect sort of first wave feminism with these very extreme avant-garde art movements, uh, such as Dada and Surrealism. And I feel like there's this perception that, you know, first wave feminism was sort of stodgy and middle class. But your book really pushes back pretty forcefully against that story. Was that a conscious goal of yours? Yeah, I'm so irritated by the centennial of women's suffrage that you know, it's like, it seems like it's all about the vote and women in hats and sort of like these prim and proper women. And the feminist history that I'm interested in is all of the organizing and action that happened uh, around the women's vote, but then didn't really necessarily end in the vote. So at the same time, we have these hunger strikes that um, are occurring uh, for jailed women. Uh, you know, over months and months and months. You have arson campaigns that are happening every week uh, for sort of deserted churches in the countryside. Uh, And I'm more interested in those tactics and the kinds of social worlds that developed around those tactics, Um, uh, specifically that, you know, women who call themselves terrorists um, who participated in bombings um, and acts of industrial sabotage. Uh, at the same time the suffrage movement was happening. Um, and I, I think that, that that's a history that sometimes gets erased when we just focus on uh, the end of the movement or the gain that was the women's vote. Mm-hmm. In your acknowledgement section, you write a little bit about how this book kind of emerged for you and kind of in your thinking around the book around 
movements like Occupy Oakland, other leftist and anarchist groups that you've been involved with, uh, which I think is sort of a really, really interesting perspective to be writing uh, kind of scholarly history and, and literary analysis, uh, you know, contra to Glenn Beck or whatever, most academics are not <laughs> politically radical. Right. Um, but so how does how do you feel like your kind of involvement in on the ground uh, political movements uh, influenced the way that you looked at these historical uh, radical sort of antecedents? Well, it really changes what I look at for my archive, because when I started getting involved with these currents, um, there was a real gap between my experience on the ground, which was mostly about sitting through endless committee meetings or doing all the sort of nitty gritty organizing to get a neighborhood kitchen set up or, um, you know, just sort of like the day to day experience of organizing, being super bored during an occupation because you're just you're just there all day. Right. Um, or super kind of bored and then excited during a, a march. Um these experiences aren't necessarily recorded in the histories or the, the newspaper accounts of the actions, which are all about the ends or, you know, what did the march accomplish, um, especially in terms of changes in legislation. So I became really curious about how earlier currents on the left and amongst feminist and queer movements uh, dealt with some of these more daily uh, textural problems that um, were were really sort of the center of, um, of, of my experience and other people's experience um, in Oakland during Occupy and during um, uh, movements in the UC campuses. Um, and and I, I just sort of, I wanted a prehistory, not so much so that we could find, you know, an answer like, what do you do in a certain scenario, but just for a kind of a company to understand um, how other formations had been working through similar things. So to get more, a little more specific, could you give us some examples of some of the ways that uh, kind of early radical feminism and avant-garde artistic movements uh, were entangled with one another? Yeah, for sure. I've been thinking, I was at um, a Breonna Taylor protest last night and I've been thinking a lot about lists of names and the ways that social movements use uh, the names of the dead um, as a kind of tactic or as a rallying cry. In New Haven, um, the names are, are particular to our location. And so um, along with Brianna Taylor, we hear about uh, Stephanie Washington and Paul Witherspoon, who were shot in 2019 here. And so I wondered how earlier social movements sort of enumerated their dead and then the ways that that gets um, taken up into artistic currents at the time. So one, one version that we have of this is a play called Fire's Daughters uh, by Ina Césaire. And it's about a kind of small insurrectionary movement in Martinique in the late 19th century. And uh, the play begins with a list of names, the names of... Um, uh, the insurrectionaries who were sentenced by the court. And it just lists name, profession, age, and that's it. It's a strange sort of omniscient voice um, that happens outside of the space of the play proper. And so one question I ask myself as a literary critic is, is sort of how do we imagine the name doing work in that context, in the protest, in the play, um, in the archive? Who is the name speaking to? Is it someone that we identify with? Is it... Um, 
Is it a kind of um, a lyric? Is it meant um, as a rallying cry for the future? And, and sort of thinking about the name and naming um, is one thing that connects this play that, that's you know, supposedly happening in the late 19th century, uh, was written in the 20th century, um, but whenever it gets enacted, sort of hinges upon the names that are familiar in our present day. Great. One of the examples in your book that I found particularly interesting is that there's a, I forget the name of it, but there's like a early feminist, like suffragette magazine that gets sort of rebranded as a, as an avant-garde literary magazine yeah, that ends up publishing yeah. T.S. Eliot. And right. I found that really strange and, uh, and, and interesting. Right. It's a, it's a kind of forgotten prehistory of the egoist, um, which we usually think of as a kind of stodgy magazine um, and a magazine for like the great white men of modernism primarily. Um, but actually, you know, it, it, it was so weird and so, so much more radical in its sort of earlier feminist guise. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's life trajectories of print cultures like that that I often turn to to show that um, the feminist movements that I'm interested in or the political formations I'm interested in weren't really like that far off or that peripheral to the modernism we're probably most familiar with. It is like T.S. Eliot or Ezra Pound. Yeah, that's another one of the sort of theoretical claims of your book that I found really interesting is that I feel like there's this uh, other sort of common, commonly received story that is the modernist movement was aesthetically revolutionary, but politically reactionary. Right. And right. and you want to sort of say, well, sure. I mean, like you're not you're not trying to argue that Ezra Pound wasn't a fascist. Right. But right. you are saying, but he's not the whole story. T.S. Eliot and, and Yeats and, you know, Joyce are not the whole story. And if you widen your sort of lens on modernism, it starts to encompass a lot of people who are very clearly on the left and even the radical left. Right, right. And sometimes those figures on the radical left then turn right, you know? It's it's a really naughty history, too. It's not like I used to get really frustrated doing the legal history that the super left radical anti-colonial black writers that I was interested in didn't just always stay on their side, you know, in terms of a, a radical potential or a revolutionary current they're often engaged with or appropriate, appropriating or borrowing the language from both liberal and far right currents. And so um, when you, you get deep into the archive or the literary, um, literary and dramatic um, pieces from the period, it's not so easy to always draw divisions. And so a lot of what I'm interested in is just dwelling in the political or ethical ambiguities of these artworks. Yeah, one of the figures who occupies a lot of space in your book, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing their name correctly, is Claude Cahoon, is yeah, that it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who's on the cover of your book mm-hmm. wearing a shirt that I very much want, which <laughs> says, I am in training, don't kiss me. Yeah. <laughs> um, with sort of some like, I don't know, I, I got it. Nipple tassels is what they look like on the shirt. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or, or pasties mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, and, pasties, but they're, uh, they're part uh, of the shirt. For, you know, they, they're part yeah. of the shirt, yeah. yeah. And, and and they're wearing the, these sort of heart-shaped, uh, you know, uh, blush makeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, splotches and and this kind of Cupid's bow uh, uh, lipstick. Um, so th- this is a style of femininity that seems like it has a lot in common with like contemporary drag performance, right. like this sort of like mm-hmm. 
sort of burlesque of femininity, mm-hmm. um, kind of pushing it to this extreme uh, degree. Is that what's going on in, in Claude's work or is it a little, a little more uh, uh, complicated? I mean, it is complicated, but I think you are right on the nose. Like Claude Cahoon, I mean, was was a really kind of forgotten figure uh, for a long time. And I think there's been a resurgence of interest in her. And I'm just going to use female pronouns because that's what she used. But it's a vexed issue because Cahoon has become a kind of precursor to um, transgender identities uh, in the present. Um, and so some would argue that um, we should use they, them. Um, and, and this sort of historical, I'll, I'll say naughtiness again, is, is part of what makes Cahoon so interesting because she was dressing this way so much earlier um, than a lot of um, what we understand trans or even um, burlesque identity um, or butch femme identity um, to, to sort of have come into prominence. It's actually, I think, one of the most interesting takes on Cahoon's portraits um, are the ways that they are actually um, a kind of a participatory work uh, with her partner, a life partner. Um, so it's, it's sort of Cahoon is um, uh, behind the camera, but the person we don't see is Marcel Moore, who's taking the picture. Uh, and the, most of the pictures, there's hundreds of them, weren't even meant to be circulated. They were just sort of like this intimate currency, a reworking of identities. Um, Cahoon gets compared to Cindy Sherman a lot. Um, but Cindy Sherman is, is, is creating fo- you know, photographs as works of art to be shown in a museum. Whereas with Cahoon, it's, it's unclear what the purpose of the art object was in many cases. Um, it might have just been a kind of hobby, a kind of intimate conversation. Um, it could have just, it could have been, you know, like part of what Cahoon and Marcel's Moore's um, sort of journaling or, you know, a personal history project looked like. And so um, the status as art or performance is a little bit vexed. Yeah. Um, you also talk a, a bit about uh, Claude and Marcel's work as sort of anti-fascist pranksters. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's the term, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they're they're you know you start with this sort of very august, austere claim that they were you know part of the underground resistance right. to the Nazis, and then when you when you talk about what their specific activities entailed, it starts to look you know, not quite like the uh, bombing train lines I or something know. that we might expect from films. So could you, could you <laughs> describe a bit about what their, uh, what their anti-fascism looked like? Yeah. Well, you know, they, they got very serious punishments for their crimes. They were jailed by the Gestapo and sentenced to death. So <laughs> that's, you know, right. um, they did And they were that. sort of rescued by the British, yes. uh, yes. who, they were on the island of Jersey, which mm-hmm. I didn't realize was is very close to France. It, right, I, I right. It it's just a tiny little between, speck in is. the channel. <laughs> yeah. So, and it was taken over by the Nazis, and then, you know, thankfully liberated by uh, by the British uh, before the executions were carried out. Right. But right. yeah, what were the crimes that but, yeah, that they were so going to be hear, executed for? When you hear those punishments, right? You know, sentenced to jail, sentenced to life. You you imagine train bombings and serious spying, um, but actually, what they did was. Uh, it was more like a propaganda campaign where they left little pieces of paper or drawings or artworks 
that were meant to convince German soldiers to join the other side or to just irritate them sometimes. And so it was this weird kind of surrealist practice of leaving art objects, um, sayings, um, little um, sort of quotations and so on, where they could be find, found by other people in the island of Jersey. Um, and then sometimes they did like these like weird little, um, I, guess, I guess I'd call them like object collages um, with panthers and so on, or they used nail polish. It was very whimsical and I think probably not terribly effective. Uh, but nevertheless, I guess a, a brave thing to be doing um, at a moment where I'm not sure what other options for resistance were available on the island of Jersey. So, right. I mean, do you think being effective was the point, or was was it a, a more private kind of rebellion of the soul, almost, right. kind of proving to themselves that they were not cowed by the Nazis? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, they took themselves pretty seriously. If you read the letters and the prison writings, so so when I I I assume that they knew that they weren't that effective, but then you read the writing and you're like, oh, okay, they really thought that this was um, both like a more a very serious moral prerogative. I don't know; it's hard to gauge the humor because a lot of the writing comes after they were sentenced, and then everything took on a different. Um, light. I think that some of some of it is an attempt to to, to create some level levity or um, a sense of humor around sort of extremely violent inhumane conditions. And remember that um, Cahoon was Jewish and so was in a really dangerous um, position both as a Jew and as a queer woman um, or a woman living with another woman. Um, during this time. So, and, you know, um, in both cases, they're, for, for Moore and Cahoon, their very existence um, was already a kind of feat of survival. Yeah, and, and, and Claude had some theoretical writing about the kind of the relationship between art and resistance, right? Could, yes. you, could you sketch out a little bit of kind of what her theoretical uh, approach was in this in this area? Yeah, I mean, she started with the Surrealist movement in France and then got kind of cheesed off with Breton's misogyny and, you know, st- <laughs> um, the, the sort of uh, clubby atmosphere and, and, and really stopped believing, I think, in some ways that art could affect political change. So like the Bretonian line that, you know, an art in the service of the revolution um, was starting to wear thin, I think, around the World War II. Um, all the same, I think Cahoon doesn't, if you read across the writings, there's some shifts, but it's never entirely coherent. I think it's the desire that artwork um, can affect the world never really goes away. There's still a kind of longing that art objects, and poetry in particular, um, Cahoon wrote a, a lot of really incredible poetry. Um, this kind of desire that it could uh, um, affect some kind of social change is present throughout. Um, going back to the sort of feminist movement, one of the things that surprised me about the book was how you reveal that feminism and socialism and anarchism were very closely aligned during this time. I feel like we often have this idea that, you know, old 
early 20th century socialists only cared about the sort of masculinist idea of the factory worker. But Mm -hmm. it seems like that's another, again, I feel feel like we keep coming back to this theme of these kind of uh, received narratives that your book is kind of complicating. And and this seems like one of them as well. So um, how would you describe the relationship between the socialist movement and the feminist movement at this time? Oh, it's super messy and super intertwined. Um, And, and, you know, a lot of especially left feminists were were a huge part of the socialist movement, but they, they didn't always agree. And so I, I almost like to tell the story by episodes because it starts to show the ways that these two currents come together and then they come apart and they come together and they come apart. So one of my favorites is um, the proletarian birth strike, which was um, a tactic imagined by feminists uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century the idea is it's you would you you wouldn't stop having sex. It's just you would start using birth control, which was then um, a potentially scandalous thing. And the birth control would um, sort of drastically lower the birth rate. And then capitalism would fall because there wouldn't be a sort of new generation of men to, and women um, to work in the factories. And so that was the idea behind the proletarian birth strike. And feminists were really for it, in part because it um, valorized or allowed the use of birth control. But, you know, the socialists um, and even, you know, sort of very prominent socialist feminists thought it was just total claptrap, in part because they didn't want to take any emphasis away from the situation of the factory worker and, um, and sort of worry about these concerns about childbirth. And so a lot of times you'll get this narrative where socialists say, like, yes, 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 feminism is important, but it's not our priority. It's the thing that we'll worry about after the revolution, um, after we have a sort of worker strike, um, and then we have a new society, then we can look at feminist um, ambitions. And um, what I'm interested in is the response um, by feminists. Um, who say, no, 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 we need to, you know, we want a revolution, but we need to meet our demands um, right now, um, whether than, rather than waiting for a better future. Yeah, this, um, this idea of the proletarian birth strike, it, it, it never entirely went away. It reminds me of uh, Donna Haraway recently has, mm-hmm. has got into quite a bit of controversy on the left for uh, kind of imagining a future with a drastically smaller global population now for more ecological reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a lot of pushback uh, against against those arguments because um, because of the history of eugenics, yes. right? Like because of the <laughs> idea that like, you know, you can say it's voluntary, it's voluntary, it's voluntary, but it's still, it's, it's hard. It, there's a, there's a, an uneasy kind of slippage between that argument to you know, like Margaret Sanger's arguments about how poverty is caused by overpopulation, uh, yes. which are, are ickier. Yeah. Um, so was that kind of part of the con- uh, controversy at the time in the early 20th century around the proletarian birth strike, the idea that this could kind of feed into eugenic ideas about the inferiority of working class people? Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it, you're, you're, it's a problem for me now. I certainly wouldn't advocate a proletarian birth strike now. Um, I actually, I see it, it when it was happening earlier, the eugenic tie was seen as one of its strengths. And this is at a moment when um, early socialists and anarchists were also eugenicists. Um, and so this idea of controlling the population for a better future was much more accepted then, which does not make it 
um, less problematic now. Uh, a lot of times, uh, these eugenic and socialist feminists um, are are sort of asking for a quite horrible trade off, and we see this with Margaret Sanger as well as she moves from a kind of left feminist position um, to an increasingly eugenicist, racist politics. Uh, and so I'm. I'm less in the position of advocating or not, and more in the position of trying to understand, like, why would um, this seem appealing for um, a group of women um, organizing at this time? And how can it all, you know, sort of expand our ideas about reproductive freedoms, which right now are sort of problematically tied to the right to privacy? Um, Mm -hmm. And the privacy doctrine is extremely limited. And so, what happens if we start to think about reproduction as a tactic for equality? Like, um, you know, the birth strike is a tactic. Um, what other tactics could we sort of imagine in that arsenal uh, besides privacy? Uh, these are the questions that are sort of spinning in my head and when I look back to the extremely weird and, yes, eugenic history of the proletarian birth strike. Right, because it's not about this is a private decision between you and your doctor. It's about this is a, a, a tactic in the struggle for you know, human liberation. Right, which is, right. And it's not even my body, my choice, right? It's like this imagination right. of collective bodies and your body and other bodies being um, kind of literally tools or weapons uh, in the service of um, overthrowing capitalism. It makes me think of actually the women's, no, it's the Mother's Brigade in Portland or the ways that um, mm-hmm. unwaged women um, or then I think there was a husband's brigade too, or fathers, I should say fathers. Um, but the ways that these familial roles get, um, sort of, um, weaponized, um, as possible, uh, political subjects is something that's still happening or still thought about today. And it seems like, I mean, we're getting a little bit of field here, but it seems like part of the political efficacy of kind of weaponizing your role, uh, as a mother is that, a mother is imagined to be in a political standpoint. So for like the, the example of like the mothers of the disappeared in Argentina, like part of what they were able to do is say, no, 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 we're not leftists. We're not dissidents. We're just mothers who want to know where our sons are. When that was like clearly a sort of a pose, right? Right. Well, it also shifts a, a sort of familiar socialist framework where to be an effective political body, you need a wage so that you can strike, Right. Um, mothers are not seen as waged workers. They're not seen, um, within the framework of the worker's identity. And so they are not seen as having political leverage, um, because their labor is unwaged, is unrecognized. And so by taking the role of mother seriously as a, as a worker, right, as someone who contributes, uh, to social wealth, um, and as someone with a political purchase, um, I think, you know, it's a, it's a really, interesting standpoint. And if you start to look backwards, you see mothers doing this um, uh, all over the globe and um, all sort of different across historical moments. How sort of elaborate was the theoretical framework around this birth strike? Like, was there anything like a sort of um, uh, sort of reproductive, uh, like uh, feminist, socialist, theoretical analysis or was it was it kind of like was it seen as a tactic i guess that's my question was it seen as a tactic or was it seen as a sort of theoretical challenge to the way that the socialist movement conceived of work you mostly find it as a tactic in manuals so in elizabeth Gurley flynn's um manual sabotage 
um, it's, it's like a how-to manual, right? And she tells workers, all right, well, if you can't strike, you can destroy the looms in your factory this way. Um, <laughs> and that's sabotage. And then at the end, she has a discussion of the birth strike as a kind of sabotage of the population. And so you see it in places like that, in leaflets. Um, and then sometimes it's, um, in, in sort of the notes from workers meetings. I don't think it was ever taken that seriously as a tool, um, to destroy capitalism. I think it was taken more seriously as a way, um, to popularize birth control, really. Mm. Um, and, um, sort of recognize women's labor, in the home um, as, as unwaged, but nevertheless important and limited. Yeah. Another moment you look at is the We Charge Genocide mm-hmm. petition. Uh, and I, I first learned about the We Charge Genocide petition from uh, Shauna Redmond's book on Paul Robeson. But what I didn't realize was how recent the term genocide was at the time. Yeah. So it was really a time when kind of there wasn't a, a, a super elaborate popular understanding of what did and didn't count as genocide. Uh, so how does this, this petition fit into your larger argument about the evolution of human rights and the relationship between human rights and uh, avant-garde artistic movements? Right. Well, I look at We Charge Genocide as another enumeration of names, actually. And so I, as a literary critic, I sort of come to it um, as an object that isn't literary, but still offers itself to a kind of problematic analysis. It's almost impossible to read. It's 250 pages, and it's just sort of iterative depictions of lynching one after another after another and you start to read them and they start to blur together and then these weird patterns emerge so you so you're like oh wait this is is this the same one no it's a different one um and it's just this sort of horrible incredibly grotesque experience of 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 a reader coming to uh incredibly long document of suffering. And so I try to understand what that looks like, but also try to understand it within a reproductive politics or a feminist politics um, along the lines of birth of the birth strike, but quite different here. And that genocide um, as a crime is about the destruction of a population. And so here we have a population of black youth um, that are being murdered. And one of the claims is that it is, is therefore a crime, not under the sovereignty of the, of the state or the United States, but up to the jurisdiction of the United Nations. Did this reflect a sort of genuine faith on the part of the people who presented this petition in the ability of the United Nations to intervene in U.S. domestic affairs? Or was it, was it more of a sort of, uh, and I don't mean use this word negatively, was it sort of a propaganda t- tactic? Right, right. I think it was maybe more of a tactic meant to embarrass the United States. And they were embarrassed. Um, so if you look at um, UN negotiations during this time, uh, Russia is constantly pointing to the United States' poor human rights record um, through lynching and crimes against African Americans as a reason why the United States should not be re- respected on the international stage. Um, and so they're playing into this debate, but it's, it's a pretty powerful hand, um, because the legitimate legitimacy of the United States on the foreign stage is, is the thing that's at stake. 
One of the other things that you write about in the context of the United Nation are these uh, committee meetings, especially around the drafting of the Declaration on Human Rights, mm-hmm. where you see the sort of predictable uh, back and forth between the United States and and sort of its allies and the Soviet Union. But you also see, you know, what we might think of as the third world or the non-aligned countries finding ways kind of in the uh, in the cracks between those two giant edifices to make their claims heard. So could you discuss a little bit about kind of how how, how those uh, less powerful nations used the structure of these UN committees to, to get their uh, voices heard? Right. I wanted to move away from understanding the committee meeting as a kind of democratic public forum where everybody's voices can be heard. Because anyone who works in an institution and has sat through many committee meetings knows that it's not necessarily a space of freedom. Um, and I, I wanted to think about the process of committee meetings as a, as a social form and something that um, deserves attention. So not just in terms of who talks and for how long and how loud and um, that sort of thing, but also how sort of smaller players or other voices might get into the mix. And the weird thing about the United Nations um, drafting in San Francisco is the ways that um, what were sometimes called the smaller nations would like corner people in the bathroom to talk to them outside of the context (laughs) of the meeting Um, or develop sort of little factions within the meetings. Or in in one case, I I do this long reading um, of a moment that's just purely procedural in the committee meeting. Um, it doesn't affect any kind of change, um, but it's, it's where the delegate from Haiti just sort of monologues and imagines a different sort of world and then immediately gets shot down by Henry Shawcross, the delegate from Great Britain. <laughs> and, and this imagining goes nowhere, um, but it's itself a sort of interesting moment of utopian thinking that is then just like buried in the pages and pages and pages of um, document of, of meeting minutes um, for um, these organizations, and and so I, I kind of wanted to position the committee meeting not as a conservative form or a liberal form, but just a form uh, that could be used towards any ends. And um, in that chapter, I switch over from the sort of UN committee meeting. Um, to um, a sort of black feminist organizing in Martinique that was associated with the UN at the same time who, you know, give us a very different use and practice and ends for committee work. Right. And I found that a juxtaposition really interesting because on the one hand, this is a group that is, you know, very much kind of at the margins of global politics, pushing back against colonialism, but is also sort of, I don't know, liberal, <laughs> like they're not, yes. they're not particularly politically radical. Not um, at all. <laughs> even, even while they are this sort of like, you know, uh, black anti-colonialist formation. So could you, could you talk a little bit more about, I mean, that's one of the, you know, maybe more surprising entanglements uh, between different kind of political tendencies that you write about in the book. Right. It's, it's about Paulette Nardal, who's, um, who's sort of, a, so became, uh, a representative for the United Nations, and was also involved in negritude currents in uh, Martinique. 
And, and so she seems like this kind of perfect juncture, a figure that is involved in international politics, but also involved in a kind of radical poetic currents. Um, but she's actually not very radical at all. She's liberal to conservative. Um, and her writing is usually about a kind of a racialized progress narrative of colonial subjects um, becoming Catholic. She was Catholic um, and uh, sort of achieving enlightenment. Um, and so, you know, as a critic, what do you do with that? I want to um, give her recognition as um, a, a black feminist negritude writer. I, I want her to be part of that record. Uh, but then I get kind of frustrated with um, her sort of matriarchal narratives of um, Martinican feminism. So what I end up doing, actually, I look at um, the journal that she was a part of. It's called Woman in the City. And I look at some of the editorials and they're just, you know, they're often about, you know, sort of uh, Martinican women um, gaining the vote and participating in the United Nations. Um, but more interesting than that are the meeting minutes from their society. And so it's sort of reading around the corners of the magazine, reading these meeting minutes about the different kinds of committees that were getting formed and the ideas they had about mutual aid that becomes most interesting. And so they're imagining an all-women's police force to take over the current police force, which is like, okay, more police. But then they're also imagining <laughs> um, different ways of sharing um, child-rearing labor, of establishing societies to walk women home at night, of um, having kind of communal kitchens. And so that is actually the kinds of conversation and practice that I end up being um, most exciting, excited about and most wanting to uh, um, sort of understand as part of an overlooked Black feminist history of negritude. Mm -hmm. And this also seems to intersect with debates about kind of mutual aid and is mutual aid inherently radical or revolutionary or can mutual aid just be a way of sort of patching the holes in the existing uh, in the existing system without seriously challenging it. Do you see your work intersecting in the, in those debates? Right, I do. And, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about care work in general um, during COVID times and, and what that means. And I think, you know, it's, it's hard to not imagine unpaid labors of child rearing, of cooking and cleaning, this kind of feminist reproductive politics is not being part of any kind of revolutionary program. And so when people say that, you know, these labors are peripheral or not important, I think that's just a way to erase the labor of women um, more generally, or the necessity of survival, especially for black and brown people. Um, uh, during um, a potentially revolutionary moment. One, one book I keep coming back to is this, it's in my afterword. It's this very crazy book called The Hearing Trumpet by Leonora Carrington. And it's about a bunch of sort of octogenarian ladies who get sent away to an elder care facility that turns out to be um, full of witches. And so all of these um, ladies in their 80s and 90s who have been rejected by their families um, and seen as like past the point of, of reproductivity, past the point of usefulness, are now in a kind of witchy commune. 
um, and they band together and survive the end of the world. It's a very strange book, and the plot doesn't entirely make sense. Um, but it's weird in the canon of modernist studies because we almost never get narratives of older women, um, in particular, and, um, rarely get narratives that are so sternly focused on labors of care and the necessity of feeding yourself and others, um, of taking care of the health and others as part of what we need to, uh, survive both the end of the world and to maintain any kind of radical political practice. Yeah, and, and Carrington's a figure who's been sort of taken up recently by uh, kind of contemporary feminists. I feel like she's she feels very of the moment now with the sort of witchiness and yeah. the fact that she's a surrealist. And like, I, I have a friend who's uh, a, a trans uh, autistic playwright who is absolutely obsessed with Leonardo Carrington. Um, but you, you, you sort of have reservations about this novel. You think it's, it, 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 it's not particularly a great novel. Is that, am I no. reading it correctly there? I mean, it's always hard to write. I mean, I, I got, I really get the sense in your book that you, you, you're not the kind of critic who, loves writing a, a harsh account of a book, but yes, it seems like you felt like you had to here. <laughs> I try to be generous and I'm really torn because on one hand, The Hearing Trumpet seems like it would be my favorite book in the world. It has everything I'm interested in. It's got witches, it has transgender subjects, it has, um, you know, sort of multiracial sociality, the end of the world. It has like these animal-human hybrids and it's all about care work. I mean, it's just like, I feel like I feel like it was written for me. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, it's kind of boring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like they're really, it's like I say, like reading it, it's like listening to someone narrate their dream at length, you know, where they're just like, and then I climbed a mountain and then I met a dog and then we descended into a pit and then there was a train, you know, like nothing adds up and, and it just sort of, it, you just feel kind of lost after a while. And then I think also I sometimes feel put off by Carrington's sense of humor, which some people find really charming. I find it, I think that she's given up on the idea that that aesthetic experiments can um, have any kind of purchase on the world. And so it becomes this point of ironic, sad commentary in her work. Mm -hmm. I say like, it sort of feels like a museum for past revolutionary forms. It's like a very echoey. Um, and sometimes, I mean, I think I would probably feel that way too, but it, it's not necessarily the book that I feel most passionate about or the most enlivened by. Yeah. Do, do you think that uh, art can change the world? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, no. But I work on a lot of really early, uh, earlier works that thought yeah. that was the case. And I think that I am sometimes persuaded by the romance of, of that imagination. But do I think it can happen? No, I, not at all. Um, Why not? I think that artworks can change the person who who makes them and the person who reads them. But if I say, like, write a, a poem about homelessness tomorrow, that might change me, right? It might change how I think about homelessness. I don't think it will necessarily um, materially affect the, the people who don't have housing security where I live in New Haven. And so 
Um, there are instances where art objects have blown up and affected, you know, great, great material change. They're just so far and few between that I sometimes feel very skeptical about making that particular um, trajectory a banner for what art can do. Right. So how do you see your kind of, um, I don't know, life's work then as somebody who is uh, politically radical, who wants to see fundamental change in the world and who is a, a, a sort of credentialed literary critic, I know. Um, you know, where does that leave you? If that's not too personal of a question. Not at all. I ask myself this all the time um, because, you know, then why read poems? Why read novels? Why am I going to plays? Like, what's the point? Um, and I do think that these aesthetic works allow for imaginations that can be on one hand, maybe most basically a kind of coping mechanism. I think I would not have survived adolescence without novels. Um, uh, but also a kind of imagination for futures, um, for different modes of sociality, uh, for tactics, um, you know, for different, different paths um, of, for history in the world. I think that's important. I just don't think that they necessarily um, will affect those changes. I think they could be a kind of seed for them. They could allow, allow for imagination, but I don't see the artwork doing things. I think people do things. Right. I wonder if, if this is a sort of a feminist claim in a way that's kind of connected to what we were discussing earlier in that, you know, it's maybe, it's maybe a sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm really just kind of spitballing here, but like, it's maybe a sort of masculinist idea of politics that politics equals change. Whereas if we look at a more kind of social reproductive approach to politics, we might think that the work of kind of maintaining people and, and maintaining life and making life worth living is itself a political act, even if the goal isn't change. So do you think there's a way that we can think of, of art as a form of social reproduction in that way? Yeah, as a form of survival. I, I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely true. Um, and in that case, some of the emphasis is taken away from the individual art producer and, and put on the consumer, right? Or the person who is, is reading or writing, or I'm really interested in amateur art and, and um, whether it is in prisoner writing, in um, prison productions of um, visual art, in, in children's, you know, drawing. I think, you know, everyone should be an artist and everyone should be able to make art. Um, and that might be the most radical vision of the ways that the aesthetic and the political can be conjoined. I'm thinking of, you know, like chalk, chalk writing during protests and poster making um, and reading groups. I think like the most sustaining radical practice in my life might be um, consistently belonging to reading groups um, to have um, to make friends and comrades and intimates and people that um, then become part of my mutual aid circle uh, by sharing our interests in literary and theoretical texts. Can I ask what you're reading in your reading group? Um, let's see. I'm about to start. I'm about to join a new disability studies reading group. Um, so I haven't started that one, but I will be talking um, later this month with um, my uh, Ferrante reading group. So that's a group mm. based on the novels of Elena Ferrante. 
Um, and um, I haven't read her most recent one, but I'm, I'm just delighted. It becomes an excuse um, for me to stay in touch um, with people that I haven't spoken to for a long time and to sort of reach out. And I, I'm in a socialist reading group, and tomorrow we're having our discussion of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Blythedale Romance, oh my which goodness. is my suggestion, and I, I'm I'm very anxious about it because I'm not sure anyone's going to like it. Oh, are you leading the discussion? Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> and so, for you, what is the socialist um, import of The Blythedale Romance? Well, I mean, it's about a socialist commune for one, <laughs> but I also think it's sort of about yeah, it's about the the ways that these, uh, you know, communities emerge at a, at a specific time in a specific movement that maybe don't change the world, but do change everybody involved in the movement and therefore change the world if, if in a much more modest way than the people had originally intended. Uh, and I feel like that's definitely something that I see in, in your book is that, you know, do we know that Claude Cahoon's, uh, anti-Nazi pranks uh, hastened the liberation of Jersey. They probably didn't, but we're still talking about them now, you know, 70 years later. And, and, you know, that's kind of special. Exactly. And then Cahoon was also part of this circle of, of queer artists in Paris and Jersey. And, and that sort of just that work of sustaining each other um, and writing to each other um, is, is something to be celebrated and thought through as well, a different forms of minoritarian community, I think, as well as sort of like this huge global scope of fighting the Nazis. I'm, I'm tired of fighting the Nazis being the sort of standard version of historical action and change um, that is endlessly repeated to us in the movies or in the novels. Like I'm much more interested in a tiny secret queer society um, on the Isle of Jersey and the ways that uh, they could sustain each other in a time of war. Well, Jill Richards, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time already, but thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts and, and thanks for your wonderful book, The Fury Archives. Oh, thank you.